ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Eric Anderson, and joining us on the show today is Dr. Michael Behe to talk about two recent papers about evolution. Dr. Behe is professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University and author of the groundbreaking books, Darwin's Black Box, The Edge of Evolution, and Darwin Devolves. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Eric. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be with you. Should be fun today. So, Mike, I know you've been super busy with the start of a new semester, the publication of a recent anthology you contributed to Chapter 2, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, as well as a video series you've been working on to help people understand some of the arguments you've made in your books. So, really appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Yeah, well, it's always fun uh, to talk about it with you, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So today I wanted to have you help us understand two recent papers that came out claiming an important role for evolution in a couple of different organisms. One paper is about the evolution of malaria, which I know you've discussed a lot over the years, particularly in your second book, The Edge of Evolution. And the other paper is about a fascinating suite of molecular machinery called the spliceosome, if you're game for that. Sure. So the first paper is about the evolution of the malaria parasite, Plasmodium falciparum, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And you've talked a lot about that in your writings, in your book. So the paper, which is published in this month's Nature Microbiology, is titled, Plasmodium falciparum is evolving to escape malaria rapid diagnostic tests in Ethiopia. So first, from a medical standpoint, Mike, what are these rapid diagnostic tests and what are they looking for? Well, of course, uh, what happens is uh, usually a child gets sick, gets a fever and, and stuff and goes into a clinic. And well, lots of different things can cause fevers. So the doctors there have to decide what the child has. And this is a test that looks for the presence of some malaria-specific proteins in the person's blood. And the companies that make these tests, of course, package them so that all the people in the field have to do is just add a little something, you know, uh, turn on a timer and they'll get results relatively rapidly. So mm -hmm. that's generally what goes on. Okay. So it's looking for a couple of specific proteins that would show up in the blood if malaria is present and wouldn't otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. And so the paper says that malaria is evolving to escape the malaria rapid diagnostic test. Sounds like malaria is pretty smart. It's out there developing a new yeah. capability to hide, hide from these tests. Yeah. Isn't this, isn't this sure. a great example of the power of evolution in producing this new capability, Mike? Yeah, it, it certainly sounds that way. You start to envision, you know, El Chapo, the Mexican drug lord, you know, a helicopter going into the prison <laughs> and, and pulling him out, you know, all this planning, all this equipment. But it turns out to be a, a whole lot less exciting than that. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about what's actually going on. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. It's, it's kind of like this. Suppose you go to a baseball game and it's say the Phillies versus the Mets, and it's taking place in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has notoriously unruly fans. But, <laughs> Care, but careful there, Mike. <laughs> uh, hey, I, I'm a fan of Philadelphia, so I, I can say that. There you go. And you go, but you're a Mets fan, and so you have a Mets cap on, and there's maybe a hundred of you in the stadium, and, and the unruly Phillies fan 
see your Mets cap and they, you know, pour their beer over your head or something. Well, if you don't want beer poured over your head, the best thing to do is take off your cap and uh, hide. And this is kind of what malaria is doing because the proteins that the rapid diagnostic tests look for are the cap that they're Mm -hmm. wearing, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, And what the malaria does is essentially not only take off the cap, but throw it away. They delete the genes for these proteins so that the current test that's being used will not be able to see them. So they're trying to fly under the radar. Right, right. Okay. But then the human patient won't be treated with the anti-malarial drugs. Those variants will survive. And an evolutionist could certainly argue, well, so therefore these variants have quote unquote evolved to be more capable or more fit to survive. Yeah. Well, that's like press release talk. It's <laughs> making, <laughs> making it sound like, you know, super fantastic. But what they're doing is that they're throwing away something they already had. Again, mm-hmm. like the baseball cap, you know, maybe it was your favorite cap, but now you have to throw it away not to, to be injured. Apparently though, these proteins the genes for the proteins that were deleted, they were doing something useful in the malaria. Presumably, nobody actually knows what the function of these proteins were. But apparently, it's a net gain not to be tracked down and eliminated by folks that will dispense anti-malarial drugs than it is to go without this particular protein. So the first thing evolution does is throw out something that's causing it net harm. So that's what happened to these guys. Yeah. And so just to pursue your analogy, uh, you know, if I had the cap, the cap is good for something, right? If it gets really sunny or if it starts raining, maybe I'd prefer to have my cap. Sure. But in, the, in the moment, I prefer to take it off and throw it away because yeah. <laughs> I'm better off. Yeah. That's uh, right. You uh, don't want to get drenched by beer or, or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is, is there any evidence that a new biological feature was produced in this uh, study? The answer is no. All, all that the malaria has done is throw something away. And mm-hmm. ag- again, if you want to use a different analogy it's you know suppose that a burglar has some burglar tools with him and he's but he's walking in uh, away and the police come he might want to toss away the burglar tools that he used because he would know that they were incriminating incrim- <laughs> and he'd end up in jail yeah. well the mal- malaria tosses away these things just so it won't be tracked down and killed by the anti-malarial drugs and the patient if he's not treated then because people don't realize he's infected with malaria if he goes out then into the sunshine still sick but nonetheless a mosquito comes along that bites him it was originally uninfected it bites him it will become infected with these malaria lacking the particular proteins that are tested for and it will go on to bite another person and spread that variant throughout the region. Yeah. Okay. So, and I guess we can, uh, you know, people can call this uh, quote unquote evolution if they want, because it's some kind of change. But if it's, if Darwin's theory is going to serve as a theory of how to get new traits and new biological capabilities and eventually entirely new kinds of organisms, 
then it has to show how those capabilities arise. And it looks like in this case, what we're seeing is the exact opposite. What, what you've called, I know, in your book, devolution. Yeah, that's. I, I think that word does good service because the important claim of Darwin's theory is that it can build sophisticated things that we find in life, like eyeballs mm-hmm. or or malaria cells or other things. The importance of Darwin's theory is not that it can help an organism throw something away and, and survive. Yeah, that won't explain where, where life comes in the first place or where the very uh, intricate structures of life come from. So this sort of evolution is best termed devolution because it emphasizes that something is being lost. Yeah, yeah, it's really a degradative mechanism, not a creative one, which is which is key. Good, good. Okay, well, now let's look at the second paper. There's a fascinating study by Sales Lee et al. titled Coupling of Spliceosome Complexity to Intron Diversity, which is published in Current Biology, actually coming out next month. So brand new paper. And I want to take a couple of minutes to lay out some of the evolutionary thinking. But beforehand, just to bring our listeners up to speed, the spliceosome is a remarkable molecular machine, or I guess rather complex of machines that can take a string of mRNA nucleotides that have been transcribed from DNA and then remove certain sections, what are called introns, and splice the pieces back together again. So it's a really remarkable system. And the authors in this paper note that in one particular species of fungi studied, the spliceosome is made up of about 90 proteins. The splicing process involves eight separate steps that require ATP. So for anybody keeping score at home and wondering whether this kind of a system could come about through purely natural processes, if you have eight ATP-dependent steps, it means you've got eight separate steps that would not otherwise be thermodynamically favorable under normal conditions without the ability to harness ATP and use it to drive the reaction. So just a mind-bogglingly complex and frankly, still poorly understood system. I, I would I want to say lastly, the authors also mention that the human spliceosome appears to contain about 60 additional proteins, they say. The reason for this added complexity is not understood. Well, it's not understood, but it's certainly not gratuitous complexity. You can bet that it's there for a reason having to do with the additional sophistication of the human splicing requirements compared to simpler fungi. But anyway, that's a, that's a basic overview for listeners. Anything you want to add about the spliceosome, Mike, before we talk about the study? Yeah, that it's it's really cool. <laughs> it's, it's got, <laughs> as you said, in, in most species, there's 150 proteins and five different RNA molecules. And what's uh, an interesting feature is that it some of the proteins go in and go out and during the processes it's a dynamic mm. machine it's yeah. not it's not fixed like a lawnmower and then goes mows the lawn it's, it's things are coming in and going out during the process so it's it's remarkably complex yeah so i guess the technical term sometimes used is that it's it's recruiting these different sections you know i need piece one to do this and then i recruit the second part of the machinery to do you know y and then i recruit the third part of the machinery to do z is that is that well yeah but the the word recruit makes it sound as if you know what's going on uh and, <laughs> and in reality scientists <laughs> don't really know how this thing assembles itself. I yeah. mean, you have to go down to the really the atomic level to see what interactions are favorable and unfavorable. And, and it's really a mind-boggling 
process. So scientists oftentimes, you know, well, you have to say something. So they use <laughs> they use words like recruit, but they're really uh, just stand-ins for a process yeah. that we don't really understand. Right, right. Yeah. So fast, fascinating system that certainly merits a lot of additional study. In any event, what were the researchers looking at in this particular study, Mike? Well, it's interesting. Uh, when the spliceosome was investigated, it was seen that we people, we humans and most uh, higher organisms had 150 proteins. But in yeast, especially in this one species of yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is also called baker's yeast, mm -hmm. they saw that there were only about 90 or so proteins. So it was thought for a while that, well, maybe this single-celled yeast creature represents a, a more primitive state and that over time, we more complex creatures gained all these proteins. But then it turned out, and these researchers showed that, no, that there are other species of yeast that do have as many proteins as humans do. So it looks like, at best, the common ancestor of yeast and human, which would go back, you know, 500 million years or so, had all of the complexity that's now found in humans, and that this particular line of yeast, Saccharomyces, lost 40% of the proteins it had. So again, it represents evolution by loss, devolution, rather than building something new. Yeah. So the first sentence of the paper says over 40 spliceosomal proteins are conserved, a little bit of an evolutionary narrative there, but, but exist, we could say, between many fungal species and humans, but were lost during the evolution of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So, you know, they're, they're talking again about evolution but it's a loss. What was the um, the correlation between these genes that didn't exist and some of the intron splicing that was going on? Well, uh, yeah, let me first emphasize uh, a, a point of yours is that nobody's showing the evolution of anything in these experiments. What mm -hmm. people are doing is taking modern yeast probably have sunglasses on listening to disco music or something and, and checking them out and comparing them to modern humans and then just using theory saying, well, they must have had a common ancestor, so this must have happened. But the only thing they see is what's going on in the modern organism. Right. And it turns out that yeast have other differences, the Saccharomyces yeast, in that they have only about 3%, 1-30th the number of introns, which you explained in the introduction, which are interruptions to the gene, interruptions to the coding sequences of genes. They only have one-thirtieth as many as humans do. And again, it seemed in the beginning that people thought, well, yeast was more primitive. I mean, you know, what do you expect from a dumb yeast? <laughs> but then they looked at other species of yeast, and it turns out the other species of yeast have about as many the kinds of introns as do humans. Mm. So if you assume then that they have a common ancestor, then you're going to have to assume that the yeast threw out all of these introns and threw out the splicing machinery as well for reasons known only to the yeast itself, apparently. 
Yeah, and it seemed like they were trying to um, identify and, and, in fact, did identify some correlation between the number of introns and the number of, you know, of genes utilized in this. Yes, in well, this uh, uh, of course, if uh, the spliceosome acts on the introns, as you explained, that when the cell first makes an RNA copy of a gene, the sequences that represent the introns are still in that, and it's the job of the spliceosome to actually cut those out and stitch together the segments of the RNA that actually code for the protein that's going to be produced from it. So you can say to yourself, well, if you have fewer introns, then maybe you don't need as sophisticated of a spliceosome. But again, that you know, you're speculating uh, about a, a lot of very, very complex things. Yeah. Yeah. And from an engineering standpoint, I mean, you'd want to really dive in, which is a lot of hard work and it's going to take a lot of years, but you'd really want to dive in and say, what's, what's the operation of this baker's yeast that allows it to operate without these 40 proteins? And what are these 40 proteins doing in other fungi and humans that make them necessary. And, and by the way, what are the additional 60 proteins doing in humans? <laughs> lots lots of yeah. great questions about what's really going on. You don't, you don't have to be a design proponent to eventually come around to these questions, but uh-huh. the ele- evolutionary narrative, I think, becomes a real distraction as we attempt to shoehorn the biological facts into some kind of historical storyline uh, rather a- than just absolutely. what's going it, on. Yeah, you have to keep in mind that nobody even really knows how these things operate or what are the consequences of not having them or why you have introns at all to tell the truth. I mean, there are theories, but you know, there are speculations. Yeah. Anything above the question of how do these things work and how do they compare to the other species that are somewhat different in their operations, that's just speculation built on ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> Bad combination there. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but let, let's grant, uh, Mike, for the sake of argument that there is some sort of a, you know, grant the author's historical narrative there that there's a real relationship, an evolutionary relationship between the base fungi and this baker's yeast. Uh, but it still, as you pointed out, seems to be that we're dealing with a loss of something, right? Yeah, that's right. This kind of sets the narrative on its head uh, because, as uh, we mentioned before, baker's yeast, the Saccharomyces, was a favorite laboratory organism that scientists would study. And Mm. it turns out that it had a a lot fewer proteins in its spliceosome. So that kind of fit the Darwinian narrative that things get more complex over time. But now, uh, with the discovery that other strains of yeast do have all that complexity, yeah, we're back to devolution, that this particular strain, at best, has lost something that was present in the ancestor. So again, it's like those malaria that are getting rid of a protein because it was a net burden on them, simply because of the testing environment. Apparently, sometime in the past, if you stick to the Darwinian framework, these proteins were a net drain on the yeast and they had to get rid of them. But getting rid of proteins is not as easy to do. (laughs) It is building new machinery, getting new proteins. That is the main question. 
Yeah, yeah, like spending money. That's easy to do. It's getting (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) good. Great point. So, um, any in just the last minute here, Mike. Any final thoughts for our listeners as as they kind of run into studies like these? What what should they watch out for as they hear? You know, this such and such evolved to to lose (laughs) lose a feature. Yeah. Well, that's it. Uh, Whenever you see these puff pieces in the popular literature in the New York Times or see it on TV show, and they say, look what evolution did, always ask, how did it do that? Mm-hmm. And if they give you the information, then ask yourselves, is this a loss or is it a gain of something at the molecular level? Nine times, you know, 99 times out of 100, you'll find that, yes, it's a loss, not a gain. Yeah, great point and really good for us to watch out for because it's it's easy for us to be taken in by the optimistic sounding language that this or that evolved when in fact on closer inspection, it seems just over and over again, the data actually shows a loss of features, function, capability, loss of information, a loss of exactly the things that evolution needs to be able to produce if it's going to be taken seriously as a creative theory of biological systems. That's right. And and it's interesting that we have just, or science has just acquired this ability because Only in the past 20 years or so has equipment been developed that can easily sequence large chunks of DNA, which is changes in DNA are the definition of a mutation. Mm -hmm. And it's only been recently that we've been able to track down mutations. And as I try to emphasize in my most recent book, Darwin Devolves, now that we have this capability, it turns out that a large majority of beneficial mutations are in fact ones that break or degrade genes. Yeah. Yeah. Beneficial. I want to put that in air quotes because that's, that's the term in evolutionary biology that refers only to the ability to reproduce more and have greater reproductive quote unquote fitness, but it really has nothing to do with beneficial in the normal sense of that word, where you're talking about something that actually works or functions or, or it provides a capability or new information. That's right. It was beneficial for those malaria to get rid of two genes, but that did not confer upon them any new biological capability. Well, thanks again, Mike, for being with us to walk through these two brand new papers to help us parse through the evolutionary narrative, understand what's really going on. It seems the more we know, the less tenable the Darwinian story becomes. Sure, Eric. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about some of the evolutionary claims that don't quite live up to the hype, join us again at idthefuture.com on your podcast app of choice or at our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. Help us share these important messages by sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Casey Luskin. Did you know that ID the Future reaches tens of thousands of listeners every month with the evidence of intelligent design? We need your financial support to keep ID the Future going and growing our listener base. If you value this content, please consider a gift right now. Go to idthefuture.com and click on the big donate button near the top right. That's idthefuture.com. Your donation is an investment in science, culture, and truth. That's idthefuture.com. Thanks so much for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. 
This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.